Well, halfway through this week I had a call. Claire was ill. Could I preach? Well, I thought, how hard can it be? Do not murder. Don't do it. Isn't it as simple as that? But then I got to think about what this, com- this commandment might include. I looked at the original wording in the Hebrew and I found that the word that was used is fairly unusual. The particular word used both in Exodus and Deuteronomy is rasa, which is quite specifically relates to the private killing of personal enemies. And not, for instance, to killing in warfare or within a legal penalty system or anything like that. But still questions remained for me. What about self-defence? What about those huge, huge questions around the sanctity of human life, about abortion, about euthanasia, about suicide? All those things started piling in. I thought maybe this is not going to be as easy as I first thought. Gradually I realised that this topic is huge. So I could attempt to keep you here all day, I could try that. You have had an extra hour in bed. Or I could try and pare it down to something more manageable. You'll be glad I picked the second option. And I took a look at what Jesus had to say on the matter in the Sermon on the Mount. Not surprisingly, when we look at what Jesus said about something, I found something profound and rather shocking, actually. And that is that all of us have, in fact, broken this commandment. And I'm going to explore with you why that might be. Jesus, as he did with the commandment we looked at last week on adultery, took this commandment on murder and deepened it. He asks the question, what is behind it if we commit murder? Making the link between murder and anger. He says, you have heard what it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So he doesn't change that. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So we're going to look at this commandment and the link to our own anger today by looking first at the case study that Stuart read to us earlier of Cain and Abel. Then we're going to take a closer look at anger and I'm going to ask three questions. Is it ever right to be angry? I'll be getting us to look at ourselves and questioning ourselves about what our own anger looks like. And then I'm going to ask, how can we deal with it better? And then I'm going to stop. You'll be pleased to know. Okay, let's look at Cain and Abel, the story we had read to us. When Cain's offering was not acceptable to God, he became very angry, Cain that is, and his face was downcast. Literally in the Hebrew it says, it burned Cain greatly, or to the core, and his face dropped. God's displeasure with Cain revealed the sad state of affairs of Cain's heart. Instead of trying to put his attitude right though, Cain let it harden to murder. It was the anger in Cain's heart that was the problem. That was where it started. Abel was a righteous man, on the other hand. Righteous is a word that indicates the state of his heart before God. That is why God favoured his offerings. The reason Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable was his attitude of heart, not the quality of the goods he brought. 
So right from the beginning, right at the start of the Bible, God was considering the heart of man. And in these next verses, we see God talking to Cain about the matter of his heart, challenging him to do what was right. Cain was speechless, but his action typifies someone who has chosen to go his own way and is consumed by anger, and it's still the same today. Cain chose to follow his heart, to react in haste and anger, and the first murder was committed. How often do we, like Cain, act in haste and in anger? And we'll come back to that in a little while. So here in John, in 1 John, we can see the link again between anger and murder. Notice in these verses that it says that Cain belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Again, it's clear it was the state of his heart that made him fall short of God's will. He was jealous of his brother. Both his reasons for anger and the way he lived it out were evil in God's sight. One led to another. They weren't separate. Jesus develops that by underlining the link. Not to kill is not enough to avoid breaking this commandment. Too often, too often we commit murder in our heart without ever having raised a knife, shooting a gun, administering a poison potion. It's the heart that counts. We know these verses in Samuel underline that. The Lord does not look at the outward things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But what is anger? What is it? There are lots of uh, definitions about, as you can imagine, but I found this one useful from Packer. Anger is a state of disturbing and energising passion which strong neg- uh, which, in which strong negative emotion is triggered by a perception of wrong done to oneself, others, or both. So let's take a closer look at this state of disturbing, energising passion. And our first question then is, is it ever right? Well, yes. Yes, it is. We can see here in Mark one of, the, one of several examples where Jesus was clearly angry and behaved in an angry way. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And by the way, I don't think he was speaking nicely and calmly as he did it, you brood of vipers, indeed, and throwing over tables. He was indeed angry, certainly demonstrating energising passion. Anger gets a bad press, doesn't it? And we assume that it's wrong. But throughout the Bible, we read of God's anger, of the anger of Jesus or the anger of a righteous man appropriately shown. If you think about it, anger is an emotion that shows that we care. If we didn't ever get angry about anything, it would seem like we couldn't care less, wouldn't it? In fact, surely it must be sinful not to be angry at some of the injustice we see in the world today. St. Augustine said, 
Hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the way the present situation is and courage to believe it doesn't have to stay that way. So anger can be a motivation for change, a motivation for change for good. The word anger appears 455 times in the Bible and 375 times of those refer to God's anger. God gets angry. If he didn't, what sort of God would he be? God gets really angry. He gets angry at injustice and pain, at unfairness and injustice, at hunger and violence and abuse and cruelty, at damage to the environment, at man's humanity to man, at adultery and murder and jealousy and rage and selfishness and greed and lies and cheating and blasphemy and lawbreakers and I could go on and on. God gets angry. But, of course, with God, his anger is always justified, both the reasons for his anger and the way he expresses it. If only the same could be said for us. So, is it right? Yes, but... Whereas God's anger is always pure and his reaction to it entirely appropriate, here in Mark we're reminded of what typically comes out of our hearts. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Clearly, if this is the basis of our anger, it is impure and inappropriate for God's people. Yet sadly, much of this is very familiar to many of us. Aristotle summed up the challenge that we face quite well. He said, anyone can be angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, in the right way, is not easy. It's not, is it? So, a closer look at anger then. The second question is, what does yours look like? I want to get personal. What does your anger look like? These verses in Ephesians underline, as we have seen, that to be angry in itself is not a bad thing. Indeed, it is the right reaction in some cases. In the message translation, which I'll read to you, it's even clearer. It says, go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as a fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. However, we do sin, don't we, by being angry at the wrong things, such as for selfish motives, or we can sin in how we display our anger. Hence, don't give the devil a foothold. J. John, in his book, identifies four types of reaction to anger, and I wonder if you can spot yourself in any of them or a combination of them. Are you the manic? Heather described this earlier too. The manic. A pressure cooker waiting to explode. These people have a short fuse and can blow up at any moment. I know a few of these. Their anger is obvious and if they are angry, well, you boy do you know it and so does everyone else around. These people get angry at the slightest thing. If this is you, remember that your temper is the only thing you won't get rid of by losing it. They're pretty scary, these people. 
Or, are the, or does this ring truer to you? The mute. Ooh. The mute doesn't blow up. They clam up. They cannot or will not show their anger in public or in relationships. The problem is that when we don't express our anger, we bottle it up, and actually our body pays the price. These people often end up with ulcers and suffer from stress. Some people mistakenly think that this is a Christian approach. But I don't agree. Jesus kept lost his temper, well, showed his anger in the temple. He let it out. He got it out appropriately, and, we, and so must we. Or are you perhaps the third, more like the third example? Um, the martyr. Now, martyrs never get angry because everything is always their fault. They are guilt magnets, always blaming themselves for what has happened, so they couldn't possibly be angry with anyone else. Well, that's not a healthy state of affairs either because it is appropriate for us to be angry, all of us, sometimes. And if we internalise it in that way, it will be bad. It's bad for us. It's bad news. Or are you perhaps, the worst of all in my view, the manipulator? Manipulators express their anger by getting even. The situation that has, been, that has angered them may never be mentioned explicitly again but they make sure that by their actions they inflict revenge on the person that has angered them. Some people do this very subtly by always being late or not answering the phone to that person or deliberately forgetting things to inconvenience them. It's quite insidious. I wonder if you recognise yourself in any of those or a combination of them. Now, I'm aware that that's quite a light-hearted look at anger, And I'm conscious, actually, that some people here will have serious problems with anger or the anger of someone they love or live with and that this is a big and serious topic for you and I don't belittle that. Most of us will probably display some elements of all those approaches I've talked about. We know we get angry, but how can we deal with it? How should we deal with it appropriately? Okay, so that's our third question. How can we deal with it? And there's that old age adage, isn't there? Count to ten first. We all know it. Oh, Heather, you know we know that. I can hear you saying or thinking. But do we? Do we count to ten first? I suggest we often don't. We saw in the story of Cain and Abel what happens when we rush ahead in anger. Even when God spoke to Cain and warned him not to act in haste, he went ahead and the result was murder most foul. Being angry is not the state in which to make decisions on how to proceed. Sending an email in anger and then regretting it is apparently increasingly common. So much so that email service providers are offering additional email recall features. There's a recently announced email service called Big String, which hopes to eliminate sender's remorse by offering users a way to send self-destructing and recallable email. That'd be a good thing, I know, in my house. You will remember Alistair Campbell's embarrassment back in February when he sent an email containing foul language in anger and haste complaining about journalists. His embarrassment was compounded, of course, by the fact that he sent it to Newsnight instead of the intended recipient. Ouch. I have to say, I find it difficult to feel sorry for him, but let's move on. 
Angry, and angry correspondence is not a new thing, of course. And I want to read you a little bit from J. John's book about President Lincoln. Um, President Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, had some trouble with a major general who accused him in very abusive terms of favouritism. Stanton complained to the President, who suggested that he write the officer a sharp letter. Stanton did so and showed the strongly worded note to the President, who applauded its powerful language. What are you going to do with it now, he asked. Surprised at the question, Stanton said, send it, of course. Lincoln shook his head. You don't want to send that letter. Put it on the fire. That's what I do when I've written a letter while I'm angry. It's a good letter, and you had a good time writing it, and you feel better. Now, burn it and write another one. I think that's good advice. Count to ten. But holding back and taking a while to understand our anger does not mean not expressing it at all, as we've said. In fact, in marriage guidance, the counsellors often say that one of the most healthy conversations to be had between spouses is one which includes the words, I am angry, calmly, I think, I am angry with you because... So, how can we deal with it? How can we address our anger? We can, we can, sorry, how can we, we can deal with that anger by addressing it. This is something that should set us apart as God's people, but we're not very good at it, especially when our British reserve comes into play. But Jesus was explicit about dealing with anger in this way and not letting it fester. This is how I want you to conduct yourselves in these matters. If you enter a place of worship and are about to make an offering and you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. When we upset each other, we should be talking about it, sorting things out, bringing them out into the light, into the open. It's a powerful thing in relationships, not only within church families, but within our home life and within our friendships. As long as it's done out of humility, with respect for self and the other person concerned, and is spoken out of love and not out of pain, we need to get better at this. We need to be ready to do it, and let's face it, it's hard. But also we need to be ready to hear when someone comes to us to explain how they feel wronged by us, maybe, or to confess that they have wronged us in some way, without reacting negatively or defensively or aggressively, which might come naturally if we're not careful. So often we kid ourselves, don't we? Sometimes things we think are behind us, dealt with under grace, are merely under the carpet. We've left them there without dealing with them and they fester. So, how can we deal with it? Forgive. This is so powerful. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is core to our faith. Forgiving is a way of releasing ourselves from anger, but it doesn't just happen. 
It's a decision we have to make and it's rarely a one-off. We have to revisit our decision to forgive and be resolved to do so however we feel. It's not about saying what was done to us was not important or that it doesn't matter, but it is about transferring that debt to God to deal with and letting it go. Unforgiveness is the surest way of remaining angry. There's an old saying, holding on to unforgiveness is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the the one that gets burnt. So true. So true. So, how can we deal with it? How can we deal with anger? Let's examine our heart. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. We can examine our hearts and seek to be more like our Father God, who, as we have seen, does become angry, but only ever slowly and justly and only ever under control. He is swift to forgive and never, ever stops loving us just the way we are. So, in conclusion, so not only do not murder, but also we must examine our heart. And these words from Luke spell out what our approach should be rather well. And this is... uh, from the Message Bible. I tell you, love your enemies. Help without help and give help without expecting a return. You'll never, I promise, regret it. Live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives towards us, generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst. Our Father is kind. You be kind. Okay, so just thinking back to where we started then. And I said initially I thought this commandment was easy, was the most straightforward, the easiest to keep of the lot. Until I realised the shocking truth that I think, I hope you'll agree with me, although it's sad but true, the fact that we have all broken it. Let's not be like Cain and allow our anger to rule us. Let's be determined to live differently to examine our anger and deal with it appropriately with God's help. In this way, we will honour God and honour each other. Let's pray.